Welcome to the Autonomous Podcast, a curated audio Q&A with media personalities. I'm Steve Krakauer. This is Episode 10. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Campbell Brown of The 74. Today's Autonomous Podcast is powered by Sculpt, the creative agency for a connected generation. That's S-C-U-L-P-T. More on them later. From Kansas to the White House, from CNN Election Center to education reform, we start at the beginning. Where were you born? Where was I born? (laughs) Uh, Natchez, Mississippi, which is right along the river, um, uh, just butted up against Louisiana. So I actually was born in Natchez, but I grew up on the other side of the river, on the Louisiana side of the river, in a town called Faraday, hometown of Mickey Gilly, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Jimmy Swaggart. Wow. Um, So quite (laughs) quite a group to be associated with. Um, and most of my family is in Louisiana today. My grandmother still lives in Natchez, so I try to go back as much as I can to visit. Yeah, I was going to say, is that is that kind of where your, your parents were from as well? Yeah, yeah. My mom grew up there. We went to the same school when we were kids, um, and uh, I, most of my family still there. Um, Baton Rouge, a lot of them were in New Orleans and, and left after Hurricane Katrina, so I've a lot of people, a lot of my folks now in Baton Rouge and um, around that area. So, you know, it's so different raising kids in New York City, obviously, I, yeah. <laughs> from how I grew up. So I try to go back with them, with my children, as much as I can to give them a little bit of that experience of um, small town life. And, and also to see my grandmother, who's still alive and in her late 90s, because wow. I, you know, want them to have a memory of her. So we, we, we've been going back a few times a year. That's great. That's great. Well, okay, so you're talking about memories. What, what can you say was your first memory? What's something that you can, can actually recollect from, from growing up? My first memory. Um, I remember my mom bringing my little sister home from the hospital and being really angry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Who is this person who is now getting all of my mother's attention and affection? What is this little bundle that she's carrying around, and why am I not the center of attention anymore? (laughs) How Um, how old were you at that point? Oh, God, it must have been... um, well, I'm, I'm thinking this was my, that my, I have two younger sisters. I'm thinking this is my youngest sister. So I must've been five. Cause I can't imagine I would have remembered my, uh, my other sister at two, but mm-hmm. I remember my mother carrying her and walking down the sidewalk, um, up to our front door and just standing there on the porch with my arms crossed, looking at her like, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, that that is like that is the thing I can visualize from the house where I grew up. Like my mom coming home with my little sis, who of course is my closest friend today. But oh, really? back okay. then, she was a threat to my future. Yeah, not at the time. Got it. Um, how were you as a student? Uh, high school, college? What did you think of school? Um, I was a very erratic student. Um, I went to a Catholic school when I was young, um, in Natchez, the same school my mom had gone to. And, um, it was a very unusual, I think, place to grow up. Um, certainly compared to how I'm raising my kids in New York, 
um, very, very segregated um, uh, a town, not just Mississippi, the deep south generally. I mean, I would argue even today remains so incredibly segregated. Um, I remember um, even as a child sort of the way that women were treated differently and girls were treated differently than boys. I had been raised by this mother who was very much... Um, I would, I would describe her probably as a repressed feminist (laughs) because she was, she, she herself had been raised in this very sort of patriarchal culture of the deep South, um, in a family with brothers. And she now had, was raising three daughters and she very much instilled in us you know, a sense of self-confidence and self-worth and that we could do anything we wanted to. My parents split up when I was fairly young, so she was obviously very influential on me and my thinking. And that stayed with me, obviously, for a very long time. And um, I I would credit her also with with that leading to me to getting in a fair amount of trouble when I was young because the other thing she had always taught us was that – you should respect authority, but only if they earn your respect, um, only if a position and authority earns and deserves your respect. And she encouraged us to question authority. And so I challenged my teachers a lot when I was young, and that often um, put me in the principal's office <laughs> um, with some regularity when I was young. And, and I, I mean, I've said this in the past, I joke about it, which is, um, you know, I finally found the one profession in life that rewards that sort of behavior, yeah. which is journalism, <laughs> where where you don't get in trouble for uh, talking back and asking questions um, to the point of annoyance. You actually get rewarded for it. So thank goodness I was able to find journalism, and uh, God knows how what I would have ended up doing otherwise. Yeah. So. Because of that, I was a, I was kind of a, I was an erratic student. I was in trouble a lot when I was young um, for um, talking back. And, um, you know, I, I would probably, if I could go back and apologize to some of my teachers for being a little brattier than I probably should have been and a little bossier than I probably should have been. Um, but I, you know, I think ultimately it turned out to be a pretty good experience. So I'm going to t- talk a lot about uh, your work with with education and and schools, but but what do you think? Just just sort of big picture, um, you uh, you know your ex- your own experience has brought to the work that you're doing now. Um, my own experience, um, meaning my own education and how it sort of reflects my thinking, is um, <clears throat> I. You know, I didn't have a great education when I was young, um, but I had a a couple of great teachers who really had an enormous influence on me. And, um, you know, one in particular, I think, ultimately changed my life and directed me to, you know, to the path that was the right one for me and the one that took me to Washington and to journalism and to the career that I had. Right. You know, I when I was in college, I... um, you know, I was a sort of a, again, an erratic student, you know, sometimes doing really well, sometimes not doing really well, largely dependent on whether I was passionate about a subject or I had a great teacher who got me really excited about it. And, um, you know, I, I, I loved politics. I loved foreign policy. I loved, um, history. And I had a professor 
who was who taught political philosophy, who I adored, who was also my advisor, uh, Father Mike Sheeran. And I remember sort of not being at all sure about what I wanted to do with my life after college. And he said, you love this stuff. Go to Washington and, and try to make a difference and see if you can do something and, and be engaged. And he he really set me on the path, you know, where where I, I at a moment where I was really confused. And, and I think, you know, I, we can all sort of probably reflect back to someone who was like that in our lives, who who set us on the right path where, you know, at a, at a key moment. And I think that's so critical to kids is that, you know, trying to make sure that they have a, a great teacher somewhere in their life who can, who can be there when you really need it. And he was able to do that for me. And that's, you know, ultimately what led me to see in, in, in the path that I ended up on. Toward the end of Brown's time at CNN, which we'll talk about at the end, her show had the slogan, No Bias, No Bull, which never really seemed to fit. But the slogan does fit her work now, a new mission. And I really did feel very early in my career in journalism that, you know, you, which was kind of what I was taught and and the message I was given and what I believed in early before you kind of got caught up on all this writing stuff was is that as a journalist, you could tell people stories, you could be a voice for people who didn't have one, and, and through your storytelling, bring attention to things, to problems that people needed to focus on, and that, that it, was, it was important, right? Our job was important. It didn't feel silly or frivolous to me, um, as it started to do when, you know, I'm on the air talking about Britney Spears. Right. Um, I was trying to figure out, you know, um, um, with sort of my own soul searching, like how to get back to that place where you feel like you're making a difference. And one thing that had a very powerful impact on me when I was at CNN and at NBC, there was a woman I was very close to, I'm still very close to, a good friend who um, did hair and makeup for, um, for the networks. And she did my hair and makeup and I, when I was on TV and uh, we became close, I got to know her. She was a single mom. And at the time, her, um, I remember her coming into work one day, her, she had a little boy, he had just kind of become school age, and she was trying to figure out the whole school thing in New York. And she had come into work very upset, and I remember asking her, what's wrong, what's going on? And, and she had just found out that the school that she was zoned for in New York City was, was one of the worst schools in the city. It was not a safe school, it was terrible, it was you know, not a place that you would want to send your kid. And she was deeply concerned about it, didn't have any other options, you know, did, couldn't afford a private school. Um, it was the first time, I think, she and I started talking about charter schools. Could that be a possibility? It was the first time I ever, I think, had heard of a charter school. And um, I, I spent a lot of time talking to her about it as she was trying to figure this out, and it was consuming her. And I had just had, I think I had just had my first son and I, so I had a baby and, and a pre coming to appreciate her desperation through that experience when I'm sitting there, you know, holding this new baby who was going to have every opportunity in the world, right? I had a j- job that paid really well on TV. Like my kid was going to be able to go to school wherever it was not an, even an issue for me. And she was, 
here's another mother who loves her child as just as much as I love my child and wants all the same things for him that I want for mine, has the same hopes and dreams. And she is paralyzed and trapped by the neighborhood she lives in. And, you know, his future is, is literally determined by the neighborhood she lives in. And she comes into work one day and she's got this big smile on her face and she's like, listen, I have great news. I, I figured out my school situation. And, and I was like, what, what? You know, thinking she could come into some money or borrowed some money or something to go to private school. And she said to me, I've cut a deal with one of my clients. I've agreed to do her hair and makeup you know, for free for the rest of her life in exchange for her letting me use her address so that my little boy can go to school um, in the neighborhood where she lives that has wow. one of the greatest public schools in New York City. And I was so shocked by that. I'm like, literally, here's my friend who is so desperate that she's willing to, A, do something illegal, B, like, basically sell herself into slavery to this woman because nothing is more important to her than her son and making sure that he has the best shot at life possible. And it, it was such a wake-up moment for me and an eye-opening moment for me and, the, you know, really realizing how lucky I had it yeah. and how lucky my kids were going to be. And I thought, this, this, this matters. Like, if, if our education system is set up in such a way that my friend has to do something like this, has to feel this desperate in order to just give her kid a, a shot at life, something is deeply, deeply wrong. And that sort of started me on this path where I got interested in charter schools. I started doing a lot of education stories on CNN. I was still, this was happening when I was still at CNN. And when I left, I started writing about it and um, just got deeper and deeper <laughs> sort of in this rabbit hole. And I um, got to know, you know, started writing things about the system, some of the laws that exist that make it really hard to change the system and make it better. Um, in particular, in New York State, um, I was writing, I had interviewed some parents who had children who had been in situations where a school employee had abused a child and that, you know, been found guilty of it. And that, that person, that school employee still had their job. And it was because the state law was written in a way that made it like impossible to remove this, this employee. And I was so shocked by it. I wrote a piece about it. Um, you know, we did, that's what started the parent transparency project. We did a lot of informational campaigns around it, but nothing happened and nothing changed. And having gotten to know a lot of these parents, you know, they said to me, help us. Like, we want to do something. What can we do to change this? Our children have been really hurt by this. And we ended up helping these parents bring a lawsuit against the state of New York and the city of New York, trying to change these laws and try to, trying to get a judge to declare them unconstitutional. And, you know, everybody said, this is crazy. You can't do this. This lawsuit is frivolous. It's going to be thrown out immediately. And the, you know, the state and the city um, joined together with the teachers union and they tried to have the case thrown out. And our judge that we drew um, said, you know, there's merit here and right. these parents have a right to be heard. And they, we won the motion to dismiss and the cases they're appealing it to the cases on appeal now, but you know, I'm really proud to be helping them. Um, and we, you know, since, since then, We've had other families in Minnesota come to us. We filed a case in Minnesota um, or helped them file a case in Minnesota and um, are, have 
families in New Jersey who want to bring a similar case. There's one in California now that's making its way through the courts. So it's it's a moment, I you know, where parents are, are taking this on, and it's a, not an easy fight. You're up against pretty powerful special interests, you know, and just the system, which is very hard to change. Right. And it feels... Um, it feels more satisfying and more important than anything I've ever done in my life to and be it, part of this. And it seems like the 74 is sort of combining that mission with the journalism of before, maybe in your career. Exactly. So, so I, you know, I didn't want to lose the journalism piece. And, and I, you know, my, I, I still believe, I've always believed that if people are educated and people know what's going on, then things will change because some of some of it is just so crazy, you know, that it's just basic common sense changes that we're asking for. These aren't these shouldn't be radical, you know, partisan policy debates. It's just common sense. And so um, wanting to keep the journalism piece and feeling like there was there was an appetite for it. I reached out, you know, it's very hard to make money in media as all the media companies that you and I probably worked for over the years have found out. Um, You know, I I thought nonprofit was really the only way to go. So I went to a lot of people that um, care about the issue and said, let's let's make sure that it's getting the attention and the coverage it deserves. This, you know, education K through 12 in America so that we're having, you know, debates and conversations that are grounded in fact right. that aren't just screaming partisan fights and and that hopefully we can raise the level of discourse and, and help policymakers make the right choices so the 74 launched it we just had our one-year birthday <laughs> and um we've got about 14 uh, reporters now working on it and i've got a couple of people who are writing from the you know, both conventions. We've been doing a live blog from the conventions. I, I'm very frustrated that our presidential candidates aren't talking about education, but um, we're trying to get them to, and we're trying to highlight the how some of the policies they are talking about will affect our, our system. But right. we're doing everything we can to raise raise awareness and put this on the map and into the conversation and the debate we're having in this country. Yeah, I, I I wonder just going to the topic itself. Uh, I feel like if there was an, an alien who came down and knew nothing about the the systems in place, would look at the idea of, of education, the work that you're doing, and at the very least would say, oh, maybe there's some like sort of you know little bit of disagreement, and people have some nice conversations about it, and and have different points of view. But it really the the topic is just like fires people up, especially on maybe from your opponent's side. You've you've been called a charter propagandist. Uh, Diane Ravitch, uh, who is someone who you've, uh, you've you've feuded with a bit on on Twitter and elsewhere, uh, wrote I think what is a pretty objectively offensive quote about uh, saying it sounds sexist to say she's pretty intelligent, but uh, even if what she says is total nonsense, what do you think about this topic gets people so worked up? Well, I, I was I was very surprised by it in the beginning. Um, as you can imagine, because I was like, wait a minute, I just said something that was true. <laughs> Why am I being attacked? Like I've, you know, committed a crime. Yeah. Um, the initial sort of blowback I got from some of the writing I did at the beginning where I thought, I, you know, I'm just trying to help these parents whose kids have been harmed here. Why, how is this so controversial? I didn't understand. Um, but now I have grown to understand it, which is, there are a lot of people, um, 
who are very invested in the system as it currently is. So, you know, the teachers' unions don't want things to change. Um, they want to maintain control over the way over the way things currently work. And so when you come in and start, you know, raising questions and saying things, um, people get really bent out of shape. Um, in New York, the teachers' union is the most powerful political force in New York politics. So people are, politicians are very scared of them and scared to take them on, which is why these laws haven't changed and why these parents have had to go to the court system in order to get them changed. Um, you know, I think they don't like me in particular because I have a platform, you know, I, because I've spent 15 years in, in, in media and on television you know, when I talk about these things, I, I'm able to get them out there in the world in a way that some of their critics in the past may not have been able to. And that is is um, very upsetting to them because it's really hard to have a debate with me on this issue and win. If I say, hey, I don't think that a teacher who hurts a child physically or sexually abuses a child should ever be allowed in the classroom again. How do you argue with that? <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one to keep you know, on topic. They have a really hard time defending that law that makes it impossible to remove these people. And so instead of engaging with me on the merits of the issues, because they will lose, because it's, it's, in, it's indefensible. I mean, school, first and foremost, has to protect our children, has to ensure that they're safe, and then ensure they're getting a good education. And, and it has to be about the kids first and not the grown-ups. And if you engage with me on the merits on those issues, you're going to lose because this is a pretty basic common sense position to have. So what they will try to do is create a distraction and call me names or attack my family or, you know, they, they, I mean, all the, all the stuff that sort of goes with the political, you know, nastiness of right. our system, which just as an outsider, as a journalist, I had never experienced before. Right. Um, I, I will say I've learned. <laughs> it, I, I kind of let it roll off because I, I just know it's part of the fight. And I know that I'm in, I'm in a position to, to help these parents. And if I don't, no one will. And, you know, nobody's going to, you know, invite them on TV to talk about the, the challenges they're children are facing because nobody knows them. So if I can be a voice for them again, then I'm going to be a voice for them again. And if I have to take, you know, crap from the union for it, so be it. There's nothing, you know, it's, it's easy. I feel like it's easy to stand up um, for these parents and these kids because you know, it's right. It's the right thing to do. There's no gray area here. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm not a partisan. I've never, you know, I've been an independent, I'm a journalist, so I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican. I've never really, you know, thought much of either political party, frankly. But, um, so, so there's nothing dry, you know, they, I think they would love to say, oh, she's, you know, working for this side or that side or the other side. It's, it's not, there's, you know, I'm not making any money. I'm a volunteer and all these nonprofit things I work on. So there's, there's no reason to do this other than just, you know, for once in my life, I know I'm doing the right thing and I feel like I can make a difference for these families and it feels like it's worth it and that this is where I should be spending my time and my energy. So I'm not going to back down and I'm not going to give up. 
Brown's career path has included a who's who of the TV news industry, with appearances from Tim Russert, Jeff Zucker, and more. So how did she end up achieving her dream of getting to cover the White House? That, next. But first, today's autonomous podcast is powered by social media agency Sculpt. Sculpt works with entrepreneurial brands they believe in, helping build community, drive conversions, and tell powerful stories through social media marketing. Their Iowa City-based group of community managers, digital strategists, and graphic designers have become the extension of in-house marketers, startups, and creative teams nationwide, and they'd love to show you how. Find out more at wearesculpt.com. That's wearesculpt.com. Now, back to Campbell Brown. I was um, floundering around for a while. I had a bunch of different internships. Um, I interned on Capitol Hill. I interned at a PR firm. I was kind of all over the map. And then a friend of mine had recommended me for an internship at a local news station in D.C. And I walked into the newsroom, and I sort of instantly knew this is it. This is where I want to be. I want to be in this newsroom every day. And as as you covered the business, I know, uh, for a long time, so you know um, a lot about it and what it's like, and it was very, it's very hard to break in. Right. Um, and so I was, um, I had one internship that paid um, not very much, not enough to pay my bills, um, but I was living on my savings at time, and I still had another PR job that I did part-time to help pay my bills, and I took... Um, uh, two other unpaid internships in TV because I thought, you know, let me just go, let me work at as many different local stations as I can, and hopefully I'll catch a break and someone will say, you know, let's give her a job. So I had three different, I was three different unpaid internships at um, local stations in DC. One was News Channel Eight. I don't, I don't even know if it's still around. I think it's still around. So it's out in Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C. And um, I remember the uh, the guy who ran the, the station there said, look, you, you're not going to get a job in a big city like Washington. You're going to have to go to a small market. And you need a resume tape in order to do that. And so um, I talked to one of the photographers in uh, to helping me make, you know, shooting a little video like version of me doing a pretending to report a story and to make a resume tape. And then I sent, I made about, I think about 200 copies of this resume tape, which I sent to every small market station in the country. So every little town in America, um, I would send it to their affiliate with just a cover letter, just sort of blindly. And uh, then I waited and I waited and I waited. And I remember I was getting very, um, nervous generally because I was running out of money and I didn't think I could keep doing what I was doing and, and pay my bills. And then one day sort of right when I was about to hit that panic moment, um, I got a phone call from the NBC affiliate in Topeka, Kansas. And they <laughs> said, would you like to come out for an interview? We'll fly you out for an interview. I was thrilled. Um, I went out for the interview and I met the news director there, Debbie Bell, who ended up becoming a wonderful mentor. And they offered me a job as the political reporter and it paid $6 an hour. And I remember, of course I said yes, immediately. Like they offered me the job. I took it $6 an hour I'm in. And I remember being in a cab, leaving the station after the interview, going back to the airport to fly home, to pack up all my stuff. 
and I passed by a pizza hut in the taxi, and I looked outside the window, and in front of the pizza hut, they had this big sign that said, delivery drivers wanted $15 an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? That's but the, that's it how you got to start. Not being the right decision, right? So right. yeah, you know, a lot, Kansas. Uh, well, that's the thing. You know, a lot of people, especially now, it seems that um, maybe there's more opportunities on TV now than than clearly, you know, there, there there used to be. But at the same time, like you know, a lot of people don't don't know this this local news journey that a lot of people who have really made it in the business have had to go through. So so kind of just walk me through up until about NBC News. What what was your your journey to get there? Well, um, you're right. It's funny that that's not the path um, necessarily anymore because of all the digital opportunities that exist for people. But back back in my day, that was the only way to break into the business, and it was it was great, frankly, because you were able to learn the ropes in a place where you know you were only embarrassing yourself in front of a small group of people as opposed to doing it in a major city. But I remember the first time I was on TV in Topeka. And I had never done this before. And Debbie, who hired me, the news director, was wonderful. She was like, you know, she was like a great teacher. And all of us were young and inexperienced. So she was really, it was like school. And she said, this is it. This is your first live shot. And I remember looking at the camera and the light came on and I froze. I was deer in the headlights. And I, I, for about five seconds, forgot how to speak. And, And then the cameraman was sort of snapping his fingers like, Campbell, Campbell, come on, come on. I was like, okay, okay. And it was just like those moments, you know, thank goodness, happened in Topeka instead of New York City. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, where people, I think, are far more forgiving. So I was in Topeka for, it was only, it wasn't very long. It was about five months, four, four or five months. And I wanted, my dream when I was in Topeka was to be White House correspondent. And I, Andrea Mitchell was White House correspondent for NBC at the time. It was, um, you know, I watched or I studied or I knew who all the White House people were. Wolf Blitzer was White House correspondent for CNN. And that was what I wanted to do. So I just thought if I could get to a market closer to D.C., I'd have a better shot. So I applied. um, I, I was applying to all these different markets close to Washington. And I ended up getting an offer from Richmond, Virginia. And so I packed up. Yeah, getting closer, exactly. Um, I, well, it was funny because I ended up in Richmond for about a year and a half with um, Mike Allen from Playbook fame, yeah. who was also a local reporter in Virginia, and Peter Baker, who was um, who has gone on to yeah, be one Times, of those right. you know, all-time fantastic reporters for the New York Times. But um, we were all in Richmond at the same time um, covering, covering everything. I was on the crime beat, mostly. But um, Richmond was actually a great place to really learn and understand local news. And then after Richmond, I got a job part-time, but I sort of rolled the dice and took it because it got me one step closer uh, in Baltimore. And then after doing some part-time work for the NBC affiliate in Baltimore, I, I got an offer from the local affiliate in D.C., WRC, and from there, um, NBC News Channel, which is the affiliate news service, which um, you would do national stories that, um, on behalf of all the affiliates, all, all right. the NBC affiliates around the country. Um, and I was at NBC News Channel for a long time. And then from there, 
um, got an offer from Tim Russert to come and be part of the NBC Bureau in Washington. Wow. I was the lowest, youngest person, lowest person on the totem pole, but it was it was my dream job. And uh, I started at, oh, God, I don't even know what year it was. It was still my 20s. But um, I started at the NBC Bureau uh, when Tim was still there, who was obviously, you know, a wonderful, wonderful person to work for. And yeah. boy, is he missed. I think about him so much in the context of all this political stuff happening now. But yeah. it was, um, that was, that was the moment. Well, and shortly after, um, you achieve what your your dream was at the time in the, with the White House correspondent uh, for NBC News. Yeah, I remember, um, let's see, Jeff Zucker was was at, running the Today Show at the time, and Tim was the Washington bureau chief, and they were trying to figure out who was going to cover the campaigns. It was Bush and Gore, and they were assigning people, and David Gregory had been assigned to the, the Bush campaign as the main correspondent, and they needed a backup sort of the weekend person and the person who did all the things David didn't feel like doing. <laughs> and I went to Jeff. I remember lots of people were lobbying for it, and I was I didn't think I'd get it because I had just started. But I went to Jeff and to Tim, and I said, listen, if you will give me this gig, I will go to Austin, Texas, and I will stay there, and I will never ask you for a day off, and I will never ask you for time off for any reason. I will work seven days a week, 24-7, until the selection is over. And they're like, okay. <laughs> That's a good pitch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't say yes to that? You have an employee who is that stupid. Yeah, by all <laughs> means, send her. So, um, so I got the gig. And I literally, with Alexandra Pelosi, who was one of the producers at the time, moved to Austin and lived there and didn't come home. Except one time I came home to switch my clothes from, like, summer to winter. <laughs> And that was it. And we stayed in Austin and went on the road with the campaign pretty much nonstop. And then, of course, it didn't end in November because of the recount. So we stayed a little longer than we had planned um, until Bush became president and after the Supreme Court decision. And um, I moved to the White House beat. So it was... uh, it, that was it. That was, that was, and then you have those moments, I think, is, you know, you know, it's like, well, what happens when your dream comes true, right? <laughs> yeah, when, you, when you have set this goal and then you actually achieve it and then you kind of have like a mini nervous breakdown trying to figure out what to do next. <laughs> Brown was front and center covering the 2008 election for CNN and we'll close there. But first, let's talk 2016 and how TV news contributed to the rise of Trump. Oh, I, I never saw it coming. I don't know anybody who saw it coming. I, um, you know, I had written some about this because I do think that television news in particular did play a role in creating him. Um, I'm not saying they're solely responsible. There are obviously a lot of different factors going on in this country, and there's, you know, a lot of sense of um, dislocation and, and, you know, in terms of where people's heads are, and it was the right moment for sort of a populist message, whether it's coming from Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. But I think early on in his candidacy, when everyone was sort of dismissing him as, as you know, this is nothing, this is serious, TV, do, TV news did something that was really wrong. And that was, um, you know, they went into this campaign, our, you know, all the cable news networks and all the, all the networks very concerned about their bottom line. Um, you know, people just talking to people in the news business. 
this, you know, everyone thought this was going to be a campaign between Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush, and it was right. going to be boring, and no one was going to care, and it was going to be terrible for ratings and terrible for business. And then along came Donald Trump. People could instantly see that if you put him on TV, you would get a bump in your ratings, and that meant a bump in your profits, obviously. So before I think anyone in the country thought he was a credible candidate, when everyone was thinking, oh, here's a guy who's a reality TV show star who's running for president, ha, 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 ha. TV news thought, well, no one's going to take him seriously, but let's just put him on all the time anyway because he's so good for ratings. And so that would be fine if you put him on and then you questioned him very intensely as you would a normal candidate for public office and you reported on him very intensely, as you would any other candidate. But that's not what happened. In the beginning, they didn't take him seriously, so they just started taking his rallies live with no editorial commentary or judgment or reporting around it. It was just literally they let him speak because they thought he's going to say something crazy, and that's great for ratings. And they let him take control of the editorial process and of the coverage. And they were, you know, not demanding face-to-face interviews. They'd let him call in um, where, you know, which is much easier for a candidate to do a call in as right. opposed to actually sitting down with someone face-to-face. So they gave him such a pass early on. And just, if you just crunch the numbers, um, the New York Times did a big analysis on the amount of coverage he was getting. It was, um, it, it was, he was getting 50% of the coverage, I think, or slightly more than that when there were a dozen candidates in the race. And then when it was down to just he and Cruz and Kasich, it was still six to one in terms of the coverage. And the New York Times, I think, added it up um, in terms of the monetary value of the earned media, and it was about $2 billion. So everyone was talking about how Jeb Bush had raised all this money, you know, $100 million for his super PAC, when here was Donald Trump getting the equivalent of $2 billion in free media just by virtue of the fact that the networks were taking him and throwing his rallies on the air and letting him do whatever he wanted. Yeah, yeah. You wrote in Politico, you said he was the central character in this year's political drama. And, and I wonder how much of it also came on on the fact that that he is acutely aware of, of media and has, has has really, you know, been involved in it for so long. I, I, you know, not just on the TV side, although TV is huge, but also just on the social media. I mean, with his use of Twitter and, and now Facebook and how much of, of, of his awareness do you think led him to what he's, he's been able to accomplish? Oh, I, I mean, I think it's his gift. I think he's, it's what he's great at. Um, he understands it. I mean, he spent his whole career in TV, so he understands how TV works. He understands what TV needs. Um, he understands what, what TV needs for a story and to keep it going. And um, he, you know, he delivers. And he has, you know, to, I mean, what I think the pushback I would get from um, my friends in television is they'd say, well, he was, he was much more accessible to us than many of the other candidates, which is true, which was true to a point. And then there were, you know, I just know for a fact, the other campaigns were fighting tooth and nail to try to get their guy on when they couldn't. Um, but he was accessible. He knew how to make himself accessible and he wasn't afraid of it. He just wasn't, you know, he, he didn't 
ever worry about watching what he was going to say or have any caution or reticence that you normally see in a candidate. Right. And it, you know, played to his advantage. I mean, it really is his genius. Yeah. You, you wrote uh, on a different issue, uh, a, a column about Planned Parenthood, self-destructive behavior, um, and, and really kind of take the point that if it, there's this purity test in, in the issue of, of, you know, choice and, and life, but also in, you know, beyond that, I, I think with a lot of our politics these days, and, and I think it also sort of bleeds into some of these, you know, microaggressions and those kind of conversations of, over political correctness that unless you're, you're 100% pure on an issue, that, that there's, there's reason to kind of, you know, pound away at you on, uh, on whatever social platform of your choice. Um, wh- what do you think of, of, of where we are as a culture right now in America where we have this, the, these sides that are being drawn and this, this sort of 100% purity or, or you're not with us at all? You know, I think it's gotten to to such an extreme point. I mean, when I wrote that piece, and I've written a similar piece about gun control, that you know, which you know, the point of both of them is that you can't draw a line in the sand and then expect to get a deal, right? You know, you can't say we're only going to support Democrats who are pro-choice if you really do care about a woman's right to choose. You have to bring people from the other side of the aisle to your side. Same with gun control. If you say, you know, all Republicans are evil on guns, and well, you're going to need some Republicans to cross over <laughs> if you ever want to get gun control done. So it's this mentality. And the, and the Republicans are the same on, on their issues. I mean, this is both political parties who, who sort of draw this line in the sand. And I'm not depressed about it, though, and here's why. I mean, I, I actually feel like we're at a moment where – the majority of the country feels like I do about this, where we are the big, <laughs> the, the big, most powerful, influential part of the country is the middle that is fed up with both political parties and really does want to see cooperation from both sides. And, and I, I think it was an, a huge missed opportunity for someone to step in and run as an independent in this campaign. I mean, you just see you know, the way people feel about both of these candidates. And, you know, there is the majority of the country is not enthusiastic about either one um, in terms of their likability. And it is, I don't know, maybe I'm overly optimistic about what will, what four years from now will bring, but I do think you are going to see emerging um, independent candidates who aren't affiliated with either party running more often, um, trying to engage in, in the political process more often. It's hard because of the gerrymandering that's gone on in, in states, you know, that's been driven by both the right and the left to ensure that, you know, nobody who's sort of a moderate can ever get elected to Congress at the federal level. Um, but, you know, I, I think we could have had a third-party presidential candidate or an independent candidate who, who really had a shot because I think there is a, a craving by the majority of the country for someone who is presenting um, a willingness, just a willingness um, to cross over and to, and to engage with, with the other side and, and try to solve some of these problems. I feel like people are so frustrated that we might finally be there. And so I hope, you know, after we get through this campaign, I'm not very hopeful, you know, for any sort of come together um, between now and November. Yeah. 
But I do hope afterward, which, whichever way this plays out, that, that we see some of that. And I feel like we will. I feel like this has been a real moment for people. Yeah, yeah, it does seem you know if the center's larger than it was, it's it's the the, the either end that's that's the minority, but but much louder um, and and, uh, and certainly sort of, louder. <laughs> um, you also wrote in 2012 in the New York Times um, about Obama, uh, President Obama's tone, condescending tone towards towards women, um, and, and I wonder. I was thinking about that as I, re- I reread it recently, uh, in the context of of comments like from Madeleine Albright uh, regarding Hillary Clinton, where you know it, essentially making the point that. If you're female and you're not supporting Hillary Clinton, you're you're not doing what you should be doing. Essentially, um, what what do you think of that in the context of potentially having our first female president? You know, I feel like it's a generational thing. Um, I, I work with a lot of younger women, um, just younger people generally, uh, at seventy four, and um, I mean, I'm always struck by the way the lens through which my mother views many of these issues versus how I view many of these issues. And, you know, and then how like my teenage niece is, is, you know, approaching these issues. And I do think a lot of it is generational. So that, you know, Albright is, is where I would put like my mother's generation in terms of like having to fight tooth and nail for every little thing right. um, versus where women like me have, have faced, you know, certainly still discrimination in the workplace and, and, you know, wage inequality and all these other things, but we're dealing with different challenges and we're fighting different battles. And so we don't always see eye to eye or, you know, the way things sound to us is different. So when president Obama thinks he's being complimentary to women, some women hear that as like a pat on the head, which I said in the piece, which is like, you know, don't tell me women are the smartest in the room. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. <laughs> like yeah. we're smart enough to know that now. So it, it's a, you know, it is, I guess it's progress ultimately, you know, that each generation is sort of viewing this through a different lens. And I, I do think, um, you know, Hillary represents different things to different people. And to, uh, you know, women of a certain generation, like my mother's, who were, you know, Gloria Steinem marching in the streets, um, she, you know, she stands for something that that was unattainable and uneven thinkable to, to my mom and many people in her generation, versus I think my generation who, who assumes, I assume, I will, there will be a woman president, whether it's Hillary Clinton or someone else in my lifetime. And I can't even imagine how my, you know, teenage niece thinks about this. I mean, she's, you know, it's just such a different, you know, a a different worldview. And and it's progress. I wish it were coming more quickly, (laughs) but it is progress. And I think, um, you know, and I think there's some generational challenges in, you know, I would hear my mother's voice saying, don't take any of this for granted, you know, where I, I... I'm more worried about, I have two boys. Like, how do I raise boys now to make sure that they, you know, are, are respectful of women, but in the right way, like in, you know, in, in a way that's, that addresses their opportunities and, and is, you know, but it's still kind of chivalrous in an old fashioned way. You know, you're trying to like, what's the right, um, what, what's the right way to raise a child in this generation and, and teach them the right values that we want to pass on 
you know, given the progress we've made. Right. Um, and, and whether it's, you know, involving gender or race, you know, we're really grappling with um, a, a moment where people are pushing very hard um, to see to see instant change across the board, and, and you're seeing blowback from it, you know, certainly playing out in this campaign. And you, I hope, <laughs> once this is over, because I just, ugh, I don't think any of, I, I don't think we can have a real reasonable conversation about, um, about you know, gender issues or racial issues or anything until after we get through this campaign. I just think the rhetoric is so heated and angry in the context of, of this um, polarization right. that we're going to have to wait until after November. But I really hope, I mean, that should be the number one mission of the new president, whoever it is. And, and I'm, look, I, I'll be clear about this. I, I think Donald Trump is dangerous. I've written this. I, I hope he's not the new president. Um, but we do have to have a coming together as a nation and, and you know, find some common ground and, and real healing. I think, you know, we've ripped open a lot of, um, you know, old wounds that probably needed to be, you know, addressed. But we, we've got to figure out what the healing process looks like once this is finally over. What brought Brown to CNN and what led to her departure in a very public way? I had left. Um, the White House and moved to New York to take the Weekend Today Show job and became backup for Brian Williams when he took over for Tom Brokaw. And I loved, I was so close to Lester Holt, who is, of course, now the um, NBC anchor. And he was my co-anchor at the time on Weekend Today. And and just anyone who's ever worked with him knows what an amazing person he is. And that was kind of the dream scenario. So it was hard choosing to leave NBC and going to CNN was not easy. Um, but it was, it was a unique challenge to be able to do, you know, your own show in prime time and go back to what I loved, which was politics, because Weekend Today is obviously, you know, a different animal. And I, the political coverage was sort of where my heart was. Uh, and that campaign 2008 was really unique. Um, you know, I think, CNN found its footing in a pretty impressive way in the coverage of 2008, which was just, you know, this idea of, of throwing every resource imaginable at, at one big story. And that was, you know, a, a hell of a story. Yeah. Um, you know, I say that sort of in context now, given what we're currently covering, but um, at the time with Obama and Hillary and the fight to the finish in that primary, and then McCain picking Sarah Palin. I mean, there's so many things um, that happened. And CNN really just brought in everybody and their brother to, you know, to be part of the coverage. So it was a pretty exciting time. And I think the network really thrived. And I think the coverage overall was really good. Um, it was, you know, it was after that that um, CNN, and, and look, all the networks go through this. A big, exciting campaign is great for business and great for ratings and great for, you know, sort of morale it, in cable news, which needs a big story, really, you know, need, desperately needs. It, it, it sort of flounders without it. Yeah. And my struggles were once we didn't have that big story anymore. And 
for me, um, turning, which we did when I was at CNN, I, I, you know, I've been very honest about this and why I left. I was in a, a time slot up against Bill O'Reilly and Keith Overman and Nancy Grace, who were doing very different um, television shows from what I was doing. I came much more from the, you know, the Tim Russert uh, School of Journalism, and that that didn't fit in this new world order, which was kind of post-2008. You had to be the news, not just cover the news, you know, as much as anything else. And then we tried to keep it going and turn stories, in, you know, like the death of Michael Jackson into these massive, um, you know, all hands on deck, throw all these resources at it, turn it into this big thing. And, I, you know, or, you know, Britney Spears' latest whatever, yeah. you know, scandal would be huge breaking news that you would do an entire hour on. And that is not what I wanted to do. Um, and I kind of, you know, I just had two kids at the time. I was, um, a new mom. Uh, I was either, you know, pregnant or breastfeeding the entire time I was at CNN, which was (laughs) a different kind of experience. Um, and doing something that my heart wasn't in anymore. So that's when, you know, it was about three years, I believe that I had been there, that done the show that I decided to to pack it in. Um, yeah. and you know, I feel like it's, it was the right decision. I've, um, I've had a couple of opportunities to go back since, but having sort of discovered a new calling, <laughs> which I think it is, I don't think that that would ever be the right thing for me. Yeah. So, you, you know, wrote, I'm kind of on a new path. Exactly. Yeah. You wrote at the time, uh, shedding my own journalistic skin to try to inhabit the kind of persona that might coexist in that lineup is simply impossible for me. Um, and I, I know talking about that, that APM lineup, but, um, what was the, um, I don't want to say pressure for ratings, but, but how much of that played into the, into the decision? Well, you know, I I think a lot, um, and I, you know, I think about it a lot in terms of my colleagues and, and what they're doing now and how they're covering the current campaign. Um, you know, what people, I think people understand, I think viewers understand that ratings are really important, but I don't know that they fully appreciate the degree to which um, people on the inside are obsessing about it. So, for example, and I didn't fully appreciate this when I was the correspondent, at, you know, at the White House. No one, no one talked to me about ratings. That was kind of Tom Brokaw's problem, or mm-hmm. yeah. you know, the, the anchor's problem. I didn't really experience that with the level of intensity um, until I was in prime time and at CNN. And yeah. you would, you know, they were getting minute by minute ratings. So, literally, you could see every minute throughout that hour who was watching, when they were tuning in, when they were tuning out, what spikes you would get. You know, you know, if you did a big crime story, you'd get a spike. Or if you did a celebrity scandal, you'd get a spike versus doing something more substantive on education where the numbers would plummet and you could see it. And so it would be hard not to be influenced by that. And now with the show with with your name on it also. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, now the show has your, has your name on it also, you know, and so it's, it's a little bit more. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and trying to keep the staff, you know, I had a big staff I was managing for the first time 
And every day the ratings would come out at 4 p.m. in the afternoon and all the staff would like run to see what they were. And, you know, if the number was good, whatever we did last night must have been great. You know, where it might have just been that there was nothing else on (laughs) or, you know, or the number was terrible and everybody would go, oh, what did we do wrong? (laughs) You know, what what can we fix? And it was like, well, maybe American Idol was on and no one was watching. So it's very and you're I felt as the anchor, it was my job to keep morale up among the staff and keep us focused editorially on what was important, even though I knew people were feeling this way you know, every time they saw that number. And yeah. it's really, I found it sometimes demoralizing because I felt like people often take the wrong message from those numbers. And it's hard not to when, you know, your boss is patting you on the back when you get a good number, even if that good number came from, you know, Britney Spears from driving incident or something. And, right. and that's, that to me was hard to stomach. You've had a lot of success very early on in your career and, and sustained and a lot of, you know, sort of reinvention throughout. Um, what would you say this to uh, to someone, especially uh, young women coming into the media business now? What sort of advice would you give them? Um, you know, I would say keep an open mind. Don't, you know, be ready for change. Be adaptable to anything and everything because it is still, especially if you're going into you know, I, I, I don't even know if television news is going to be around in five years, but I would, I would say the digital world, which is what we're all doing now in some way or another, um, is, is it's still the Wild West. Nobody knows what this is going to look like. I don't care who they are. No one can really tell you what this is going to look like in five years, how we're going to consume news and information. And so be, you know, dream big because the way I did it, going to Topeka, Kansas and paying my dues in local news for X number of years while I climbed the ladder, ladder, um, you don't have to do that anymore. You, if you are young and creative and energetic and entrepreneurial, the world is your oyster. It's exciting to be in that place. I mean, I would, I, I can't even imagine if you're a young person who is taking a lot of the technology growth for granted it's such an incredible and exciting place to be right now. There's so much opportunity. So I would, I would say don't be sort of fearful of the future of journalism. Be excited about it because it's whatever you make it. It it belongs to this generation and it can be anything. And I think, you know, we are, it's, it's not the death of journalism and the death of news. I think it's the future. It's just going to look very different from what, you know, I'm used to, or you're used to. And I think for a young journalist today, that's so exciting. That's Autonomous Podcast number 10, a curated audio Q&A with media personalities. Thanks to Campbell Brown. Really great talking to her. And thank you for listening. Today's Autonomous Podcast was powered by Sculpt, the social media team behind campaigns like The Third Wave, a new book by AOL founder Steve Case. Find out more about their clients, capabilities, and culture at wearesculpt.com. That's wearesculpt.com. Sculpt, the creative agency for a connected generation. And you've listened this far, I might as well give a shout out to my own digital content and consulting company, Crack Hour Media. We combine experience with experimentation to tell your story, finding new digital audiences for you, your brand, or your company. We do that by focusing on great content, video, written, and audio, like this. Find out more at crackhour.media. That's crackhour.media. Next week, we're joined by Ture. Talk to you then.